Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabody.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I am absolutely delighted to be speaking once again with Helen Garner, this time about the third volume of her diaries, How to End a Story, 1995 to 1998, published in 2021 by Text Publishing. Helen Garner is one of Australia's most well-loved writers. She has written seven works of fiction, nine works of non-fiction and two screenplays, which have won and been shortlisted for many prestigious literary awards. Helen's writing career started in 1977 with her novel Monkey Grip, which won the 1978 National Book Council Award. Other fiction includes the novels Cosmo Cosmolino and The Spare Room, which won the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Fiction, the novella The Children's Bark, and short stories, postcards from surface. Her non-fiction includes The First Stone, Jo Chinque's Consolation, which was the Australian Book Industry Book of the Year in 2004, and This House of Grief, which apart from other honours was a Times Literary Supplement Book of the Year in 2014. Other non-fiction includes Collected Essays in Everywhere I Look and True Stories. Her two previous diaries, Yellow Notebook, 1978 to 1987, and One Day I'll Remember This, 1987 to 1995, and that just about rounds up the non-fiction. In 2006, Helen received the inaugural Melbourne Prize for Literature in recognition of her outstanding contribution to Australian literature and to cultural and intellectual life. In 2016, she was awarded the highly prestigious Yale University Wyndham Campbell Prize for Nonfiction. In 2019, she won the Australia Council Award for Lifetime Achievement in Literature, and the Council said this, her work spanning more than four decades has helped Australia define its identity and has created a genre all of its own. Finally, in 2020, she was awarded the Lloyd O'Neill Award for Outstanding Service to the Australian Book Industry. Helen, welcome back to Books, Books, Books. Thank you so much for joining me. We last spoke just about this time last year, I think, about Volume 2 of your diaries, and it's really fantastic to have you back again. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me, Nicole. Thank you. One of the most surprising things I learned from this book and one of my favourite parts is that Clive James once taught you how to do the tango. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Well, that's sort of overstating it because I've never done it uh, since and I don't really remember anything he taught me. But we happened to be at the same party, a lunch party in Sydney, and um, as usual in my anxiety, I got there early and uh, and he walked in and I thought, oh, my God, it's Clive James. How can I? What will I? How can I be sort of, you know, relaxed and cool? And so I remembered reading in a, in newspaper that he had st- that he had and his current partner, whoever she was, um, were learning tango and had uh, were frequently dancing in tango clubs in all over the world. And I, so I, I timidly said, "Oh, is it true that you're learning the 
to dance the tango? And he said, yes, do you want me to teach you the steps? And I thought, oh, that wasn't quite what I was getting at. But there was no one there so except the hostess. And so he, um, he sort of seized me in his bulky arms and pressed me against his chest and said, you've got this, you this, this. And it, and it was really, you know, he just taught me the basic steps. And, um, I mean, I'm not what you'd call a good dancer, but I learned I learned ballroom dancing as a girl back in the 50s, so I know how to follow. And uh, so I followed, and it was and it was really so much fun. I really enjoyed it. And everybody started to arrive. And, uh, you know, I suppose we only danced for about, you know, 10 minutes, but I've managed to um, inflate this into <laughs> something very famous and meaningful. It and was really it was really just a very sweet and kind moment. Um, yeah, and I, I'll always think warmly of him for that reason. It's a lovely description of a party in Paddington. Now, Helen, before we start to talk about your diary, I just thought I'd set the scene for listeners as to where we're at in your life. So this volume is from the period 1995 to 1998, which is a fairly tumultuous time in your personal life. Your third marriage to V, a writer, is unravelling. In terms of your career, you've written five works of fiction, starting with Monkey Grip. The most recent is Cosmo Cosmolino, which was published in 1992. Your first work of nonfiction, The First Stone, has been published in March 1995, and we'll return to that in a moment. And you and V, both in your early 50s, have been married for a few years mm. after a long, passionate affair, and you are living together and writing almost together in Elizabeth Bay in Sydney. I'd like to start by asking you a little bit about The First Stone. What was the book about for those very few listeners who don't know and did the controversy that it attracted surprise you? The first stone is an account of my attempt to um, understand a, a scandal that broke out at a residential college at Melbourne University in the early 90s. Uh, I read about it in the paper and I was, uh, I, by the time I became aware of it, it was um, fairly well advanced. I'm the master of the college, that is the sort of principal, uh, was uh, up on a, a charge uh, in the courts. And I thought, what on earth is this about? And I started to look at it and I, um, it seemed to me that uh, on the face of it, it looked like feminism gone mad. That That's what my initial response was, I thought, what? And all the women of my generation, you know, my friends who kind of thrashed our way through the second wave feminism as it, when it hit Australia in the early 70s, uh, we, we were just sort of flabbergasted by this. We thought, is, this is sort of some sort of overreach and is this what we, it seemed to have a kind of punitive aspect to it that we didn't basically understand. Uh, and so I thought, well, maybe I can write a, write a newspaper piece about this and I started looking into it and I became clear at once that it was much too big and it was going to take too long for it to be a newspaper piece so I just started taking notes and I made one catastrophic I suppose strategic blunder right near the start before I even thought of writing about it I, I, I just thought who is this poor bastard who's being roasted alive here for what for what? And it seemed like a very minor incident to me in what I knew at the time. And uh, so I wrote him a letter. 
I mean, I, I've got a sort of habit of writing letters to people off the cuff, and I try not to do that anymore because you can get into a lot of trouble. So I wrote him a letter saying, look, this isn't what I thought feminism was, and um, blah, 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 I can't remember what else it said. But uh, naturally, you know, here's a guy going down for the third time in a sea of troubles, and uh, he seized upon this letter and sent it to people, and it got around that I'd written him this letter. And all my approaches to the people closely involved with the immediate incidents um, were rejected because I was seen as having taken the side of, you know, I was on the side of male power in, in uh, feminist terms. And uh, so doors were slammed in my face. And, of course, that 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 was a red rag to a bull. And I sometimes look back and I, and I think if one of those women had said to me, any of the women close to the story, particularly one of them who I knew and had known for some years, if she'd said to me, listen, you bloody idiot, why did you write him that letter? Uh, let's sit down. I'll tell you what's going on here. But, no, already the the, uh, the battle lines were drawn and I had, um, you know, approached carrying the flag of the wrong colour and so uh, it all became a kind of a war and my blood was up. You know, I mean, it was a sort of journalistic blood but also a feminist blood, so I followed it. And I published the book finally and um, I had absolutely no idea. There was trouble about getting it published, all sorts of things. They tried to stop you, didn't they? They tried to bring legal proceedings to stop it. Yes, the two complainants Mm. who I'm sure had been through a very rough time um, tried to um, bring an injunction against it. And they hadn't spoken to you? No, and I appreciate that. And I've said so many times in the book, it's their perfect right not to speak to me, but it did frustrate me. Anyway, so to cut a long story short, the book came out and uh, it seemed to hit a sort of moment and it immediately began to sell, sell. And this I had absolutely not expected. But I think the complainants, by trying to actually prevent me from publishing it, I mean, that and that fact was in the newspapers and, and that made people want to go out and get the book. It was probably uh, the best publicity the book could have got. Mm-hmm. And so then, then there was a sort of... You know, months and months of attacks, and yeah, it was a horrendous period uh, mm. of um, sort of wild accusation and savagery. Yeah, there was a lot of um, uh, people. I, I was hated, put it that way. I, I felt that a lot of people hated me, and I got a lot of a lot of letters. I got hundreds and hundreds of letters, and I'd like to say that I answered every one, uh, but though all those letters are in the National Library, Helen, Emba- embargoed, I'm just adding. So you write in the diary, in the early pages of the diary, quite a lot about how you feel about this very, these very personal attacks, these accusations, the, the level of animosity out there, and you write about feeling sad and confused. You say you felt ashamed, you felt guilty. And at one point, you see a clip on the news about what's happening in the former Yugoslavia, about the the terrible civil war between the Serbians and the Croatians, and you say, the world is a brutal power struggle and I am a part of it. I have to acknowledge this. And I wondered, what did you mean by that in the context of the response to the first stone and the attacks on you? I meant that one thing that this publishing this book taught me was what it is to be hated for what you think and say. And uh, that was an extremely uh, painful and but ultimately bracing lesson. And 
I see this sort of thing happening around me. I'm not on social media, so I only get it secondhand, the sort of brutality of, of the way people deal with uh, ideas they don't agree with anymore, thoughts they don't agree with. There's there's a kind of savagery out there now that really back then at the time of the first stone uh, had really not sort of launched itself or begun. But you did cop that same kind of outrage cancel culture though didn't you it's just that you were 25 you know as you say thank goodness it was before the days of social media because it was bad enough and intense enough for, enough as it was without yeah. social media yes but uh, what I learned is that you you survive it uh, and I don't know if it's any worse I was just reading Jamie Button's piece in in, uh, in Good Weekend mm. and the first of his three pieces and I on Hugh Sheridan the actor who was yes who was cancelled mm. Yeah, and, I mean, nothing like that happened to me. I mean, you know, nobody uh, tried to, well, they did try to stop me publishing the book, but it wasn't that sort of brutal uh, public um, flaying that no. uh, that I think somebody like him um, goes in for. But but it, it just, it was borne in on me by that experience of publishing that book, how far people will go to fight, uh, even in, about sort of cultural and political things that, that, that mm. don't, they, they don't involve, you know, people with guns. But um, the, I think, see, when I first, feminism first hit me, which is in the early 70s, we were so idealistic and full of hope. And we thought, oh, I think for a lot of us, for me anyway, it was like when those ideas first were sort of flowed into us, mainly from America and also from England, I thought, oh, I get it. This is, I get it. This is why I, all the, the reasons for all the unhappiness I've had in my life can all be explained by the, this, these feminist thoughts. And I thought, all we have to do is persuade, explain to men and, and persuade get them. They'll get, they'll get it. it. And then they'll end, everything be peaceful. And I really thought that. I look back on that now and I think, how could I have been so naive? But I was young and hopeful. But I, um, I, I what I've come to realise through my life is that um, that the, the struggle between men and women is eternal. It's, it's always going to go on. And people make advances. There are slight civilising factors and, and a bit more justice can be brought to bear on things. But it, it's a bone-deep existential battle mm. and it's always going to be there. So that's I think that's what I meant. You said something also uh, about the first stone you, in your diaries. You wrote, I will probably never know what I've done with this book. Whatever it is, I'll have to live with it forever. And I wondered, is that right? Have you had to? What impact has the book had on your life or did you just get past it? Well, it taught me not to stick my neck out at the beginning. Um, it taught me perhaps to go in more quietly and less trumpetingly onto difficult turf. It taught me how how wounded people can be, deeply wounded, that, that there's a sort of collateral damage to political action mm. that can see people um, wounded in ways that they'll never recover from. Mm. I'm talking about, for example, the master of a woman and his, his immediate family, mm. their suffering. Mm. And I've learned that what you write can wound people. And I've had to figure out ways of saying things 
that I believe are true in ways that aren't heavy-handed or or um, intentionally hurtful. Mm. I've I've learned to um, sort of um, keep my temper, I suppose. Mm. Um, so you know, all those things are kind of useful lessons. But but um, I, I've also learned that there are people who can keep a grudge for twenty years and. And I mean, there are certain people who were involved in that story who still cut me dead in public places. Not many, but a few. And I thought, yeah, some people are grudge bearers and, you know, I I seem to have wounded them in some way or they see that they hold me responsible for certain painful things in themselves. I've learnt that. Mm. It's sort of a useful lesson. Let's talk a little bit now about keeping a diary and what what that's meant for you over the years. You've said that you write every night before you go to sleep, every morning when you wake up. And you said in, a, in an article, I think it was in The Guardian, that you feel free when you write in your diary because you are not writing for anyone but yourself. So it made me think about your biographer, Bernadette Brennan, who wrote your biography, obviously, and who, as you know, has just written the biography of Gillian It's Leaping Into Waterfalls. And Bernadette talks about and writes about the fact that when she went and found all the archives, there were all, that Gillian had given or sold to the State Library, there were lots of notes to her future um, biographer, like, yes. but future biographer, make sure you note this, words to that mm-hmm. effect, like a voice from the grave. And I wondered, did you, when you wrote these diaries, so these are 95 to 98, the other two were earlier, did you ever expect to publish them or that they might be read by a future biographer in the same way that Gillian did? You're not heavy-handed enough to say, future biographer, take note of this, but I wondered if in the back of your mind you knew that they would eventually become public or whether that that you just didn't think about that. No. No, I didn't. I think if you if you write a diary in that spirit, that I don't understand that. I, 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 because the whole point about a diary to me is that when you're doing it, you're in some, when you're writing it, you're in some private, in some calm private place and there's nobody standing behind you breathing down your neck your father's not there your um your publisher's not there readers aren't there what you're actually doing is trying to articulate what's what's in your mind and that leads me to the matter of um the writer Gerald Manane who's just published a new book so I don't know if it's out yet I've got sent a copy by the publisher called Last Letter to to a Reader and oh, it's the most marvellous book about, about writing and about what you're actually doing when you're writing. And I, I found it so moving and beautiful and validating and strange. But what one thing I that I love about his work, he's a very strange writer, but one thing I love about this particular book is he says outright, the sentence is the basic unit of meaning. And I just rejoiced when I heard that because I'm, that's what I'm doing, sitting there writing in my diary. I'm trying to make good sentences. It, that's the basis of it. Mm. And uh, when I read him, I see that although he's often writing, talking about quite abstruse things that are slightly difficult to grasp, every sentence he writes has got this perfect clarity and purity and balance and I, I just, I kind of worship at the shrine of that kind of writing. I find it so. I'm not even talking about content. I'm just talking about the way he handles language. is is a great meaning to me and great encouragement. So, so when you you're writing like that, you're not. For you're writing 
you're writing for yourself in the sense that the part of you which is examining your sentence and saying, well, no, that's not right, that's misattached, I'll move that around to there. And it's it's just like making something and you're not going, woohoo, everybody, look, look, I'm making this and I'm going to give it to you in a minute and you can have a good look at it. It's not like that. Nobody else is existing while you're writing it. So the idea of publishing it as a diary never crossed my mind, although I use great chunks of what's in it in other things that I write in fiction. But um, I don't call, I mean, I go back to the diary and think, have I written anything about such a person? And uh, I go, oh, yes, I have. There's that whole scene in the cafe or watching ski or on TV or whatever, and I I can use that. But it wasn't aimed at that when I was writing it. Helen, you said, I think it was in the same article, in my heart, I always like my diary better than anything else I wrote. I'd like you to talk a bit about that. Why did you say that? Yeah, well, well, exactly for all the reasons I just said, because because I feel that I'm not, when I'm writing the diary, I'm not sort of um, uh, second-guessing myself. I'm not trying to impress anybody. Mm. I'm just trying to get to the nub of the matter and... And the privacy of it is uh, is very important. And when I look back on stuff that I've written, um, it's a record often of passing moments that I have in fact forgotten when I go back. Um, and I think, oh yes, oh I'd forgotten that that happened, or I'm for- or I've forgotten that I felt that, or that I noticed that. And so there it is, and it's all fresh. And I find that, um, well, refreshing, you know, to go back and, and find those moments of um, that I worked so hard at the time to articulate and then I went on. It's as if articulating them frees me from them in a way and I can sort of move on in my life and go on thrashing through, uh, through daily life as it presents itself to me. But it's, it's wonderful to go back and find these little like this. I guess they're sort of like... Um, breadcrumbs that you drop on your way and you can go back and go oh there's one and there's another one and they just well then if they're breadcrumbs they wouldn't sparkle but (laughs) they're little things that I've dropped behind me and they've Mm. got still got life in them. When did you start this practice of of keeping a diary? I know when you wrote Monkey Grip which was published in 1977 you're in your early 30s that you did draw on your diaries then so had you did you start writing a diary at school was it at university? Um, Look I know it was a long time ago but I I can't accept. I mean, I always like writing things down. I, as a girl, I did a lot, but I don't know whatever happened to that stuff. I think I burnt it when I went to uni. But it would hardly be worthy of the name of diary. It was just stuff I wrote because I like pushing the pen, basically. And um, I don't remember when I started. My, my first husband and I, the, the father of my daughter, we split up when she was about two. And probably from about that point onwards, I started thinking about it more and doing it more. So that makes gives us 50 years. And when you put together these diaries, we've got the three. Obviously, there's a lot of editing. So, for example, this, this one represents 1995 to 1998, and I think it's about 250 pages. So you obviously have to be selective about what, what stays in and what goes out. But I gather that you don't actually revise the writing very much, if at all, that this is pretty much as it was written at the time. Is that right? Yeah. I... I sort of made a deal with myself when I started out. I thought, well, I'm, I'm not going to rewrite stuff and I'm not going to, if a sentence doesn't make sense, then I would fix it. 
or um, I might do some very small reordering of chronological ordering of things within, say, a one-page area because it didn't make sense because I was writing, you know, in some distress or because I'd forgotten something and then I'd go back and say, oh, I forgot to say this. So I, I might, you know, combine something like that into one paragraph instead of letting it be all spread out so no one could follow it. But for the most part, it's it's what was there. I, I cut out a hell of a lot. I cut out... Um, <laughs> all sorts of stuff that didn't contribute to the forward movement of it. Helen, let's move now to talk about your relationship with V, the marriage. So in this book, the marriage is starting to fall apart. I'm summarising for the benefit of readers, but we see various things that are causing problems between you. He, he won't let your daughter M stay with you. He belittles your family. He tells you off when you disagree with him. He makes fairly regularly, pretty misogynistic remarks, and he hates the fact that you're seeing a therapist. Why does he hate that so much, do you think? I suppose he imagined that I was going to be talking about him, that I would um, reveal things about him that he would not want to be spoken about to another person. Um, But, of course, he wouldn't really admit that because he had a, a kind of an intellectual objection to um, psychoanalysis, to the whole um, phenomenon of psychoanalysis, and which he actually didn't know anything about, and was so hostile to that he he seized upon the the writers that he revered uh, tended to be you know high modernist European writers, uh, many of whom he said often said to me. Uh, were against psychoanalysis, thought it was bullshit, uh, and actually, but this is the point that he often made, um, that a writer or an artist should not go into psychoanalysis because it would um, in some way affect or diminish or, or damage the part of them that produced their art. And I probably might have once thought that myself, but having gone through that process, which is very grueling and challenging, uh, I, I saw and I learnt that, in fact, what you say when you're lying on that couch and when you're just free associating is very deeply connected to the way your mind works when you're writing. And I saw that as a, um, a liberating thing, mm. n- not as a... Um, not, not as a diminishing thing. It was a similar process. It was about taking risks. When you write deeply into psychoanalytic therapy, there's a lot of silence in the room and it took me a long time or, you know, some months to realise that, um, you know, I said to her once when I was lying there, I couldn't think of anything to say and she just quietly sat there and I said, oh, I, I've, I've got this feeling that, um, you know, most of the things I've got to say to you are really boring. And I said, but then there's, I, I'm aware all the time that there's another stream of things going on underneath. And she said, that's what we're after. Why don't you say that? And I thought, oh, you mean say all that? Just, you know, like there's a bird on a branch or my toe is sore or something. And she said, yeah, just say, say that and go with that. So when she said that and I grasped it, I thought, oh, right, this is what I've read about. This is free associating. Um, away we went and that's when we started to hit pay dirt 
in in the therapy. And this, it's the same thing with writing that you, a lot of the time, you sit there and and, and a thought comes to you and you think, oh, that's really pathetic. I'm not going to write that down. That's not going to do any good. It doesn't fit with any of these ideas that I'm trying to express. But if you can go with that 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 the strange way that your unconscious presents things to you instead of scorning it with your clever intellect and your clever ignorant intellect you um you get somewhere and you find astonishing connections that you can make or interpretations you can make of other people's behavior as it takes place in front of you or how you can begin to analyze why if you're interviewing someone why it's not working what one of you is doing to stop the flow of ideas it it, it was the most enriching and wonderful process to me. Mm. Helen, you start to lose confidence in yourself in this relationship and you start to doubt yourself. You're asking questions like, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing to annoy him? But you are determined, you say several times, that you will behave with grace and you'll give the marriage the best that you've got. You talk at one stage about um, trying to survive this draining attempt to be married. And I wondered, why were you so determined to make this marriage work? What were you getting from it? There there obviously were good things that you were getting from it at this time. And you talk about some of the things that he does. He comforts you at times when you're upset. He encourages you when you're working. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, when we first got together, it was wonderful to me because it was the first time I'd been with a man who shared who understood the stuff, why I was crazy about the stuff I was crazy about. I mean, why I loved reading and books and why they meant so much to me. And to be with somebody who sort of shares the the daily struggle of writing was a wonderful thing. It was quite um, so that I I sort of flourished in that for a while and and I think he did too. But... um. The problem with our, with our both being writers, of course, I mean, it starts off as being something you feel is a wonderful companionship. And we did, in fact, have a, a very strong and, to me, quite wonderful intellectual companionship for a while. I, and I, I um, in the earlier volumes of the diaries, I, I, I think I've made that clear. And I, I did, um, yeah, it was quite thrilling and I learned a lot from him because he's uh, he's probably the most widely read person I've ever had anything to do with, and he put me showed me writers that I hadn't read before, and um, and so in all that that kind of first rush of intellectual um, companionship, which I still you know look back on with gratitude. Uh, Little tiny details, you know, that I, when I go back and read the diary, I can say, oh, but wait a minute, did he really mean that? Did he really mean that when he said that women can't be artists? And I used to think it was a joke. I couldn't believe that anyone really thought that, especially anyone who who was so, uh, on with whom I shared so much. There were other horrifying things as well. I mean, one that jumped out at me was the Marilyn Monroe one that he loved. <laughs> he loved women who wore high heels <laughs> and that women who didn't wear high heels didn't like men. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, that that was, by that time we were well into the, into the um, 
just the collapses of everything. I know, I'm sure the reader's thinking, Helen, what are you doing? But, but you know, there's something about, well, you did ask me a few moments ago, why did I sort of hang on so long? You know, they're not rational reasons. I mean, people people battle their way through lives, their lives, you know, a lot of a lot of your intellectual equipment just simply does not function in the face of, um, you know, that thing called love, which is a kind of fantasy. And, I mean, of course love exists, and I know it does, but it can be um, the idea of love is often um, sort of wheeled in at moments where really you should be talking about power. And I'll just mention here this wonderful book called Parallel Lives by uh, an American woman called Phyllis Rose, which came out in 1982, a marvellous book about marriages. She takes five marriages from the Victorian era and examines them in the most wonderful way. And she makes that point of how often when one person has um, taken power and another, the other person in the relationship has relinquished power, when that imbalance starts to sort of press upon their lives together, it's people don't talk about it. That's when the word love is wheeled on, this big, cloudy, mm. uh, powerful concept that everybody yearns for, and it conceals the the brutal fact of the power balance, the power struggle that's going on underneath. So I, could, I should also say that this is my third marriage, and, you know, like everybody that's been married a couple of times, there's a lot of, regret and shame and guilt that comes from a series of broken marriages. And I thought, there's got to be something wrong with me. This keeps happening and I keep doing it. I keep getting in these relationships that seem so great and then they just fall apart and what is it that I'm doing wrong? And somebody, I think it was um, um, Annabelle Crabb, remarked about this book that there was what she called a um, a disequilibrium of... Um, self-examination <laughs> yep one of laughing. the people's doing all of the self-examining and the yeah. other person's not right? yeah the other person's like resisting the the idea that it's even worth doing Helen, that, that brings me to a very related topic and that's this concept of the sublimation of a female artist to the male in a creative relationship and you've talked about this before one of the main battlefields in your relationship with V is that he is totally obsessed to the exclusion of everything else with his own work his novel, and he's utterly self-centred. And there's a couple of ways that this manifests itself. One of them is a particular problem, understandably. He insists that you vacate the flat that you share, that you both live in, and leave him to work there. And you get out as soon as you can, first thing in the morning, so he has the place to himself all day. You have to rent somewhere else in Bondi Junction and later somewhere else for you to do your work. At the same time, he insists that you do all of the domestic work to keep the home fires burning, as you say. He's happy to see your success with the first stone and with journalism, but you sense that if you had had that same success with a novel, there'd be serious trouble. I'd like you to talk a little bit about that and about the issue of professional rivalry between mm. you. The daily problem that arose about who would work where. Um, that is a strange thing that I, you see, I never wanted to turf him out of the flat. I never wanted to say, 
uh, I want to work in the flat and you'll have to go somewhere else. Because I I wasn't um, hypersensitive to the presence of another person uh, in the... But then by the same time, I'd always worked outside the house because, I, because I'm a mother, you know, and because um, I used to... When my I established all my working habits, it was when I was writing my first book, which is Monkey Grip, and I, I lived in a sort of hippie house and, and people coming and going all day and there was noise and, and people, you know, there'd be a band practising in the front room. And and uh, and so I used to take my daughter to primary, to um, kinder and then when she got to get to school and I would get on my bike and ride down to the State Library and I'd work there because I could work there uninterrupted all day long until three o'clock and, and then when I went to pick her up. So I had a habit of working outside the house, which was very fruitful to me and I liked it. But but uh, the flip side of that, well, not the flip side, another aspect of that is that if I didn't want to go to work, I could stay home. If I wanted to, say, do my share of housework or, or just okay. lie, or lie on the bed and read, and I could do that. I always had that sort of setup. But whereas V had always worked at home and his first wife had um, worked outside, she had a, you know, a, a real job. And um, so he had the house to himself and this was no sacrifice for her, for him to be in the house all day. And he assumed uh, that his, you know, this sort of, a terrific work setup that he'd had established always is was of course going to continue, and he said, "Oh, well, you've." Do you talk about that before? Well, well, sort of. I look back on this with kind of a squirmy feeling of shame because I think, well, why didn't I just say, "No, this won't do. I can't live like this. I don't want to live like this." But I just didn't. It's by some osmotic process. Uh, his demand that he should have the flat all day and that I should make myself scarce. Um, it, it sort of osmotically, as it were, entered every cell. And uh, and I, even where I was thought, oh, fuck, this isn't fair. You know, what? I don't like this. I'm not happy with this. And even when the house we were living in belonged to me, still when we came to live in Melbourne for a couple of years, I might as well confess to this because I have in the diary that I just sort of wore it in some way, but it, it gnawed away at me. I think in the diary somewhere I say it's like a little stone that sits in the mm. bottom of me. And and, and um, but he just wouldn't even I, I couldn't even I don't know what I would have had to do to even get the matter to be seriously discussed. I mean, I would have had to make a tremendous, I would have had to fight a tremendous battle because he this was his rigid custom mm. and he was I think probably really afraid that if he broke that custom he'd stop being able to work I mean I think he probably had I mean look I'm a woman women are flexible we have to be mm -hmm. our whole lives force us to be flexible we're good at being flexible and we um Right, our, often, our work around our other commitments. Yes, and often then when a fight is coming, you see a fight coming down the pike, and you think, "Oh my God, have I got the? Have I got what's required?" For, and so you just go, "All right," and you just quietly take your little computer and go and rent yourself a place in Bondi Junction. In fairness to yourself, you did raise it with him a few times. It's not like you didn't. Exactly, I did raise it, but and and I. I, I sort of feel like in this regard he had me on the ropes from day one and in a way that I didn't even grasp and it gradually dawned and dawned and dawned on me. And 
Um, and then, the, yeah, the, the, what else can I say about that? Anyway, so let's talk about the problem of, of professional rivalry. And of um, you and of you specifically, yeah. consciously or unconsciously, ceasing to write fiction because mm. you somehow had a sense that if you were writing a novel as he was working on his great mm. novel, that there'd be serious trouble between you. Mm. you. You use the expression, you say you vacated the field of fiction and that's what you did. You didn't publish another novel until The Spare Room in 2008, which mm. was 16 years after Cosmo mm. Cosmoleno. Mm. I'm aware that these things, when you look back on them, they, they seem to be clean strokes. I'd always done feature journalism as a way of making a living all along, right through between books. I liked it, I was good at it, and I could make a living out of it. So consequently, I I never felt that I had to, you know, screw my courage to the sticking point and quickly write a book because otherwise I wouldn't have any money. Mm. I, I've always had, well, once again, we're talking about flexibility. Mm. I knew how to flex. I knew mm. how to find things to write about that I actually loved writing about. And I loved doing that, that journalism. It was great joy to me. I learned an enormous amount. It got me out of the house, dealing with strangers, um, gave me a deadline. So in a sense, it's for a person like me, um, you know, who's just as much an extrovert as I am an introvert, it's it's the perfect thing. But the other the other thing to bring in is that after the first stone, I was a mess. It was almost like, I mean, you know, I'd be overstating it to say that I'd had some sort of crack up, but it was um, a terrible battering that I got and I I didn't know what to write next. Mm. I didn't have, I'm not the sort of person who has a bunch of ideas and I go, oh, now I'll write a novel about this and then I'll do that. Writing a novel comes to me from some weird experience of my own that leads me into fiction. So in many ways, I think when I started to write nonfiction books, I felt very happy. I felt this is my métier. Mm. Or if you like, I think somewhere in the diary I say, what is my real place to write? It's down a crack between fiction and mm. the other thing, whatever it mm. is. And I feel very at ease in that space. Mm. Um, so I can't, I, I feel it would be wrong for me to blame V and his demands for that switch that I made. Mm -hmm. But by the same token, it may be that it, that my desire to get off the turf of rivalry accelerated that move. But I, I definitely wouldn't say that I moved because he might, would make my life unbearable if I wrote a good novel. You know, I don't think, yeah. But, you know, there is this creepy feeling. <laughs> you write later on that your friends comment that he stopped you from writing and you say a few times through the diaries things like you feel like your creativity has dried up. And at one point you say, I think, to him in 1997, I haven't got a single idea, not a single thought. So from what you're saying, I assumed that was pretty much all down to the relationship with him and how that was disintegrating. Mm -hmm. But from what you're saying, was it also because of the battering that you'd taken with the first stone? Mm. Yeah, um, and I also don't want to put too much stress on that, you know, as if I was, um, you know, crawling out of a nervous breakdown or something, but it was more like I, I was pretty, you know, I was staggering around for a while. Mm. And and because, the, of course, the book was really successful mm. and it sold a huge number of copies, and so that's really quite gave me a jolt. 
I mean, it sold more than any other book of mine mm. up until that date. And um, so, it, yeah, it, it, there was a series of, you know, explosions, I suppose, or areas of struggle that my life entered at that point. But but I, the, the other thing is to see V had a, um, he believed, he had very, very strong beliefs that he'd worked out over years about literature and writing and art and what they all meant. And he had a hierarchy of forms, which he clung to with great faithfulness. And one of them was that the novel was at the top. The novel was the great thing. And and journalism was right down the bottom. And I always thought, oh, that's ridiculous. I mean, that, that is, I, I don't really believe that that hierarchy of his kind of sank in, into me because I think, I think, in fact, it's not an original hierarchy. You know, there's a hell of a lot of people, blokes, who think like that. Mainly and, blokes, yes. Yeah, and, and witness the fact that when a journalist, particularly a male journalist, starts to, you know, says, oh, I'm going to write a novel, Sometimes the novels they write are just total shit. And the reason why is because they've got this thing that now I'm going to climb the mountain. I'm going to climb the mountain that as a journalist I wasn't even in the foothills of and I'm really going to lay it on with a trowel. And so you see all this crap that they write. It's this puffy sort of gesture-clogged gesture, gesture clogged, um, phony shit, which just looks like a, a fire hose should be brought to bear on it to take away all the vanity that's in there. And underneath is probably some terrific characters and a wonderful thread Secret of story. Ideas, yeah. But no, they've got to prove that they're a writer. And I just, I just can't bear that. So be that as it may. And anyway, if I had a hierarchy, I'd have poetry on the top by a hundred miles. You say at one point in the diaries, sometimes you think you'd love to be a, a poet. Yeah, but you know, I don't know how. I, <laughs> I, I wouldn't know. I, I don't. I think it, it, a, a poet is works in some in some different relationship to language, really, and it's quite marvelous to me. But I. But anyway, so there was that feeling that that what I was doing wasn't highly valued around our place. Mm. <laughs> but um, I can. I will never know how much. You know what? Anyway, what's the point of trying to apportion? blame in retrospect i'm really interested in this issue of the the woman artist and the male artist and you say at one point you feel like you're in the classic position of a woman artist who in order to maintain a marriage is obliged to trim herself you realize he will always put his needs ahead of mine every time without even thinking about it and i wondered how difficult is it for a male and female artist especially a male and a female writer to live and work together harmoniously, will one person, usually the woman, inevitably sublimate her own needs and her own creativity to the needs of the, the male artist or writer? Mm. I wouldn't like to generalise about that. I don't, I don't know the answer. I, I do know I don't know many couples who are both writers. Well, I do, do know a few. No, wait, let me think. No, I know some... No, I don't really know many couples like that. And I read about them. You know, I read about people like um, Margaret Drabble and her husband and people who who have um, found things difficult and moved into separate apartments but still mm. continued with, um, you know, some sort of married life. Mm. I, 
I think that's what V thought that we we were going to be able to do, but uh, didn't work out that way because you know he fell in love with someone else. So that um, threw a spanner in the works. But um, yeah, I, I I think this this struggle of rivalry because it's in a sense one is ashamed of it. Well, that's something that that he says. You know, once or twice I say, oh, you know. I'm, it's marvellous that your book is the sensation of Frankfurt. And, you know, I genuinely rejoiced for him about that. But on another level, under, of course, I was envious because I thought this is never going to happen to me. And But but I could see how hard he'd worked and leaving aside the fact that, you know, bits of me were lying in, 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 the, in the, the wake of this yeah. great success. But um, I, I, I know that... I don't know what it is with men like V. I don't really get it. I don't get why a woman's success is so um, difficult for them. I remember a bloke I, I knew said to me around the time that the first stone was, you know, like the first stone was on the bestseller list for months at a time. And 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 a bloke said to me, oh, Murray must be finding this hard to handle. And I thought, oh, well, I, I suppose he was, uh, but I, I don't get why. I don't get why the woman's success somehow incapacitates the man or makes his work harder in some way. I just don't get that. And I, I think it's a bloke thing, and I think that's why I don't get it. And when I say I don't get it, I don't get it on a gut level, Um I can I can have many thoughts about it, but oh, I'm sick of trudging across that bleak terrain. Helen, you mentioned him falling in love with someone else. I'm not going to talk too much about that because I'd like listeners to read <laughs> the book and find out for themselves what happened. Mm. Just got one question. You have very real suspicions with a pretty good basis that he is cheating on you, that he's having a, an affair with a, a woman called X, who's a mm. younger woman, a painter who lives around the area. How does he respond when you put those suspicions to him? Oh, in the way that people respond. Oh, what's the matter with you? Why are you so jealous? She's just a good friend, someone I really like to see. Oh, okay. Well, you know, so having experienced, you know, I think that I have got a streak of jealousy in me and it's not that this is the first time I've felt it. So, you know, I tried to sort of discipline my jealousy. and You uh, had plenty of cause is all I'll yeah, say about I did, that. But, yeah, I did. <laughs> but, of course, he was telling me I didn't. And so that is what's commonly known as gaslighting. Gaslighting, exactly. And you call yeah. him out on that and he doesn't like it. Well, he doesn't know what it means. No. He's never heard the term. I've got two final questions. At one point in the diaries, this is quite early on, you fantasise about leaving him, about going back to Melbourne without him, and spending time with your daughter when she has children, living near her. All of this is exactly, of course, what happens, not to give too much away. When you talk about this in the diaries, you say, in this huge rush of imaginary future, I got back some more of my soul. And so I wanted to ask you, is that what has happened since you parted from him all those years ago? Do you feel that you did and have recovered your soul, as well as whatever creativity um, and confidence you had lost. No, the simple answer to that is yes. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I'm a, I'm a grandmother and yeah. you know, I've had the 20 happiest years of my life, I think. All right, final question. 
at one point in these diaries, um, he he really attacks you about writing the diaries. He hates this and he hates the fact that you're um, might be saying unfavourable things about him, which he can't really be surprised about. But you think about this and you think about whether you should stop, whether you should stop writing about him and you decide that you won't. And you say, writing about my life is the only thing that makes it possible for me to live it. What did you mean by that? If I weren't writing about my life, it would um, overwhelm me, I think. The complication of life and the, and the difficulty of it, of um, of work and love and everything that goes on in the outside world, I, I just don't even know how, how to imagine life without writing's just my way of keeping a grip on things, of keeping my ship from going down. Uh, it's the only thing that I really know a real lot about and that I'm really competent at. And uh, it, it's um, it's just a sort of um, like this little boat that I'm sailing along, skillfully, skillfully managing the sails and not having to row too hard. <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense. It does. Helen, thank you so, so much for speaking to me today. I've loved talking to you. I loved your diaries. I recommend them very highly, all three volumes. This, this third is the most, um, most painful, obviously. I wish you the best generally, and we're talking about it. I hope that you and all of the other writers that I've spoken to in this series particularly get the chance to talk about these diaries in real life at festivals and see responses from audiences and have that that great opportunity of being back before live audiences again. But in the meantime, thank you so much for speaking to me on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks very much, Nicole. Thank you, Helen. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbotty.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbotty, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.